So this morning, I'm really, really excited about this, this month of January. I'm going to be talking about virtues, forgotten virtues. And each week, I'm going to focus on one virtue in particular. Now, in a moment, I will give you an idea where I came up with this idea for the series. But before we do that, I'd like to just open up the Word of God and read to you from Colossians. Now, this is the same passage I read last week where I focused on the virtue of patience. I brought it back up because there's so much here in this passage that we could work on, so much here that would be a benefit to us. Let me set it in context then before we read Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Paul in this letter spends the first half of the letter talking about who Christ is, what God is like, what that means for you and what it means for me and how we are set free from our past. And then he does what he does in all of his letters. He pivots and begins to talk then about what that means in terms of how we live. How our character is then shaped by what we've discovered about God. The idea is that it's not enough just to believe good things about Jesus, but it's also wonderful and necessary to put into practice and to live what we've heard. It's a shift from theology to ethics. And so here in chapter 3, he gives us a list of vices and virtues. Paul first says that because of who Christ is and what he's done for us, we're now set free from the past, so we've got to get rid of some things. And he says you must get rid of these things, anger, Rage, malice, slander, bad language, deceitfulness. And he said we're going to get rid of those things because we're being renewed through Christ as we're learning about who Christ is and what God is like. And as we learn about what Christ is about and who he is and what God is, we learn about the character of God, we then learn who it is that we are called to be. And as we learn about what God is like, we find out what it is that God likes and what God wants for us. So he says, get rid of this old stuff now, take on the new stuff. And he then goes on and gives us a list of virtues. Therefore, he says, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any one of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Boy, wouldn't that be great to write that on a post-it note and put it on your mirror. Get up every day in the morning and read that word. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Wouldn't it make your day different? I knew it would make my day different. He goes on and says, And over all these virtues... Put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another, with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through through him. 
This is the word of God for the people of God. All God's people did say, amen. So I was really inspired during the month of December by the funeral services and memorials for George Herbert Walker Bush. Listened to it, observed it, paid attention to it. And as I was watching one of the services, they played a clip from his inaugural, his inaugural speech in 1998. And I don't really remember it. I had just graduated from seminary at the time. In fact, I don't really remember any inaugural speeches because I've never really actually listened to one. Have you? Maybe you've listened to some. But I listened to his for the first time. And I want to tell you, I was really inspired by what he had to say. He basically talked about some really beautiful virtues, some very noble things about the difference we could make in the world if we were just kind to one another. And then he said we could solve a lot of problems in the United States and in the world if we just loved our neighbor and checked up on our neighbor. It was just so basic. It was so good. It was so beautiful. It was so kind. And uh, I felt bad that I'd not really paid more attention to his character and to his nobility. Uh, the commentator then said that George Bush, who was in his 90s when he passed away, belonged to the greatest generation. By the greatest generation, they were referring to those that were labeled by Tom Brokaw, to those who fought and won the Second World War, and defined by a set of virtues and values. The greatest generation characterized by the values of personal responsibility, a work ethic, Faithful commitment to public service, civility, humility, and this overall sense of that the, the we is more important always than me. Very different from our world. Today, me is more important than we, but we over me. It was a beautiful statement. At the time, I was reading and finishing up a couple of books on Franklin Roosevelt and also a book on the Holocaust, and it was sort of set in that context. You may remember when Roosevelt became president of the United States, the United States had just endured the most difficult economic time in its history, went through the Great Depression, and then they had to face the threat of Nazi Germany, uh, genocide, and fascism. And so the United States was facing challenges that they'd never experienced before, and frankly, we haven't experienced anything like that in our lifetime. And so, Roosevelt himself, who had been um, paralyzed in polio, his own character and temperament had been forged by his own personal tragedy and suffering. Well, Roosevelt had this optimism and hope about him as a leader, and uh, in order to rise up to the challenge, he basically reached out to people in the United States and, and called on people's goodness called them to put we above me, to focus on problems together, and to make sacrifices. As a result of that, what happened was the greatest generation was born. The greatest generation was born. Uh, the greatest generation that ended up bringing an end to the Great Depression, uh, and by the way, also characterized by frugal saving, not buying what they don't have and they don't need, but saving. They brought an end to the Great Depression, built a lot of the parks and things that we enjoy in the world today, and then at the same time put an end to uh, fascism and also genocide. Read a book about the same time about the Holocaust and a personal memoir and just reading about the horrors of that and the commitment of this generation of people 
to sacrifice their own lives for this common good. That's the greatest generation. Well, George Bush was a part of that generation, and this is the comment that really made an impression on me. A commentator said, men like George Bush are hard to find, and they're harder to find these days. It was an interesting comment. And then he said, these virtues, these virtues that Bush lived his life by are largely forgotten virtues. We have forgotten them, and wouldn't it be great if we embraced them again? Well, that really stuck with me, and I really wondered about that. Is that really true? Is it true that those virtues have been forgotten? Now, I have to warn you, I don't want to be the old man sitting in a lawn chair in my nicely manicured grass yelling at kids, get off my grass. Because as we get older, it's true that we have a tendency to think that the generation before us was lousy and worthless and shiftless and doesn't care about anything in the world. It's easy to say the whole world is going to hell in a handbasket. I look around and I see a lot of people, young and old, living noble, beautiful lives, serving and doing great and noble things. I look at the youth that we have. I look at our children. I see people and parents who are instilling virtues in them and, and in their lives. And I don't know that the greatest generation is the greatest. It was a good generation. I don't know if it was the greatest generation. There were other problems they didn't solve, like racism and other things like that. But those values of that generation are worth embracing. And so as I thought about that, it occurred to me, however, in spite of what I just said, that to some extent it is largely true that many of those virtues have been forgotten because it concerns me. This, now, this is David Emery's opinion that we are suffering from an excessive sense of self-importance, arrogance, vanity, an unquenchable need for admiration, approval, and fame. Me is more important than we. Self-realization is more important than self-sacrifice and this sense of entitlement. By entitlement, we seem to live in a world and a time, all of us, where we think that life owes me something, people owe me something, and I deserve this. And because we feel that we are owed something and deserve something, it makes it really hard for us to be thankful. And if you can't be thankful, it's really hard for the other virtues to grow because thankfulness and gratitude is the fertile ground where the other virtues begin to grow. So I was sitting in a coffee shop, and I was listening to conversations taking place around me in order to get an illustration in someone's life, from someone's life. I do that, you know. I hear things, listen to things. And I heard a woman talking about going on a cruise. Going on this cruise is going to be amazing, it's going to be beautiful, and on and on and on about it. And her friend looks at her and says, and, and you've heard this, maybe you said this, maybe you felt this, it's okay. Looks at her friend and says, well, you certainly deserve this. So I got up, walked across to her table, and I said, no, she doesn't. She doesn't deserve it at all. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. Life's a gift. We don't deserve anything. Now, didn't, that, I didn't say that. That would, just, that, wouldn't, that would have been rude and unkind and not gentle. But I was thinking it. <laughs> Hoping she could hear it out of my brain. But let me ask you a question. Why do we get the idea that we deserve anything? 
Because sitting perhaps just a couple tables over in the coffee shop was a single mom raising a special needs kid on her own who's trying to drown down a venti coffee to have enough caffeine to go to work that day because all she does is work and take care of her middle school kid and falls to bed exhausted every night without someone to help her. Does she deserve that? Or reminds me of some woman holding a child in her arms in Yemen, and we don't know anything about, whose child is dying of starvation and malnutrition, and there's nothing she can do about it because she's caught in the crosshairs with her family as global powers fight over oil. Does she deserve it? Does the friend that you have that got diagnosed last week with stage four pancreatic cancer deserve cancer? When you begin to think about it, it just doesn't make sense. And this idea that we are owed something, or owed something, is poisoning our culture. Instead of thinking that life itself is a gift. Now, now, why is this so important? It's important because God cares about your behavior. God cares about the people that you're becoming. God cares about the development of your character. As a church, we spend a lot of time embracing and talking about embracing people where they are, but hopefully you're not where you are two years from now. Hopefully there's been some development and growth in you as a person. God's love for us is unconditional, but God also has hopes for us in who we'll become. And when you look at these virtues, kindness, compassion, gentleness, sacrifice, beauty, forgiveness, thankfulness, what do we see? We see it in the character of God. And it doesn't it make sense that if Jesus makes the invisible God visible, doesn't it make sense that as Christ becomes a part of our life, that those things will become visible in us? Isn't it true that you may be the only Bible that some people will ever read? So so God cares about your character. The other thing is, why is this important? Because I believe that as you let go of entitlement, your your need of self-importance, as you you embrace we over me and kindness and the things, your life gets better. God doesn't give you the virtues in order like a punishment or condemnation. Gives you the virtues so life gets better. The one I would focus on then is thanksgiving. Gratitude. Do you realize in this text, three times he says be thankful? It's the only virtue he lists three times, gratitude. Go to chapter 4, he mentions it again. Go to chapter 2, he mentions it again. Go to chapter 1, he mentions it again. It's all over the book. He wrote it from a prison cell, chained to a Roman guard, this, this gratitude. Why? Because none of the other virtues are possible without gratitude. How can you be compassionate when you're resentful? How can you be kind when you think that you're owed something, you didn't get it. How can patience grow in you when you are ungrateful? Ingratitude is a poison of the spirit. It's a poison in the spirit that comes from a sense of entitlement. But gratitude comes from looking at who God is, reflecting on the character of God, seeing God's kindness and patience and goodness and his thankfulness, and just saying, thank you, and begins to grow inside. You see, gratitude, there's a definition, is being aware of and thankful for good things that happen in your life and taking time to express appreciation and to return kindness. It's an affirmation of goodness. 
Now, this is something I didn't understand until recently, really. I didn't understand this. If you begin to understand that gratitude is the, the ground where all the virtues grow, then how do we show gratitude? How, is it, how do people know we're grateful? When we're compassionate, when we're kind, and we're patient. How do we say thank you from a thankful heart? By being kind, compassionate, and great. Because gratitude isn't a feeling, it's an action, it's something that you do. Let me give you an example, practical, down-to-the-ground example. My mother-in-law, Nancy, grew up on a farm, dairy farm. She learned how to cook. You learn these things on a dairy farm. Thanksgiving is amazing at her house. For 17 years, I've gone to her house for Thanksgiving dinner. No, no, I've been married a lot longer than that. 25 years. <laughs> and it's all been good. It's been great. She spends a week preparing. She fixes the meal. We say the blessing. She's the last one to sit down with her plate filled with food. The time she sits down, almost everyone else is finished. All the men around the table look at her and say, thank you, Nancy. It was a wonderful, thank you, thank you. And then the men in our family do what they have done and have always done, and men always do. They got up from the table and went into the other room to take a nap and watch football while my mother-in-law stayed behind to finish her meal and to clean up everything she spent a week preparing. Well, one Thanksgiving, I broke the code. I picked up my plate, I walked in the kitchen and I washed it and put it in the dishwasher. It was like silence. <laughs> what is he doing? Resistance. But since then, every Thanksgiving, I stay behind to help clean the table. Why? That's the best way to say thank you. It's through how we act. It's what we do for others. Now, let me ask you a question. Who, who wouldn't want to be more thankful? Who wouldn't want to be more grateful, you know? You want to be around thankful, grateful people. Who wants to be around fault-finding, sniping, critical, negative people? Poor me people. Who wants to be around people like that? We want to be around grateful, happy, thankful people. They make us feel good about ourselves. And there's so many benefits, positive benefits to being grateful. Here's just a few. It makes you more resilient. It makes you more relaxed. Allows you to sleep better at night. Makes you more positive. Chases away fear and anxiety. Count your blessings, count them one by one. It chases away anxiety. Gratitude uh, helps you forgive and move on from the past. Thankfulness allows you to let go of things you cannot control. Gratitude helps you learn from your mistakes. Gratitude and self-pity cannot exist. You can't throw a pity party when you're grateful. And you become more generous. Let me tell you where gratitude should be lived out. It's lived out in the context of your relationships. You know what will save a marriage? Gratitude. You know what will destroy a marriage? Ingratitude. 
Something happens over time when people get married or in friendships too. We take each other for granted and then it sort of seeps into an ingratitude. Paul Kaufman goes to the first service. Paul Kaufman is 95 years old. He just finished boot camp for the Second World War. Immediately after boot camp, he meets Ruth. 30 days later, they're married. They were married for more than 70 years. Ruth passed away three years ago. I asked Paul, I said, Paul, tell me about Ruth and tell me about her life. And Paul said, well, you know, she was sick at the end of her life. When she passed away at the funeral, a friend came up to me and said, said, Paul, I know it's been a burden for you these last three years to care for Ruth the way that you had to. I know it's been hard on you, and we've all been praying for you. And Paul looked at that man and said, you know what? It wasn't a burden to care for the woman that ironed my white shirts for 70 years. It wasn't a burden to care for the woman that cooked my meals and took care and raised my family. It wasn't a burden to hold hands with my sweet, dear wife every night before we went to bed and said our prayers together and to wake up with her and to see her beautiful face every morning. No, it wasn't a burden. It was a blessing, and it was an honor, and I'm so thankful. Do you know why some mar- why marriage like theirs lasts for 70 years? Gratitude and thankfulness. Here's what Paul says, if you want it. Paul says, as you root yourself in God, as you root yourself in Jesus, it says it in chapter 2, you root yourself in him. As you get to know him, as you sink your life into him, what's going to happen is gratefulness is going to, thankful, start flowing out of you and touching everything around you. You want to change your life? Anchor your life in Jesus. You want to change your life? Anchor your life in the character of God. But we're so distracted. we got to anchor our life in Christ. You know, one of the best lessons you can teach your children is to teach them how to be thankful, to say thank you, just to say thank you. That's a forgotten virtue for children. But I'm going to tell you something. You don't stand a chance as a parent in today's world of entitlement, if you don't make the church and Christ and God a part and part of your life. Because where else will they learn virtues? Because every single day and every hour in your child's life, the world is coming in 24-7 into their heart and mind, sowing fear and anxiety and entitlement through a little box they hold in their hand. I had a dream the other night, and uh, really, I'm not making this up. It's going to sound remarkable, but I had this dream. Two nights ago, a big storm came and lifted my house off the ground, off its foundation, spun it around in the sky. It was just straight out of the Wizard of Oz. Spun it around in the sky and landed it back down on its foundation. I walk out of the house, and I'm disoriented, and I discover... That is 15 years later. And in the dream, I am overwhelmed with sadness. I'm so sad. And then I woke up and I wonder, why did that make me so sad? Because 
if, 50, I, if I'd been transported to 15 years in the future, it meant that my son, who was 20, was now 35. It meant that my granddaughter, who was six, is now 21. It meant that I missed 15 anniversaries with my wife and 15 Saturday night dates with my wife. It meant that I missed 15 years with you, celebrating memorable occasions and also sharing sorrow with you. It meant I missed so much of life and it went all by. And I wonder, why, why did I have this dream? It's because life goes by so quick. One day you meet your sweetheart and then 70 years have passed and you say goodbye. Life is so much better when we savor every moment and we learn to be grateful and we stay thankful. Moments like when I spend with my wife, my wife, who sometimes when we're in worship together, sit together, will reach out and hold my hand when we say the Lord's Prayer together. Or just like this last week, my granddaughter and daughter are living with us right now, and I get to see her outside playing with my dog, and I would have missed this moment. Um, she got her first job. I paid her $5 to pick up all the poop out of the yard. After the last service, she was here. She got, she got five jobs. She told me, Poppy, I'm going to make $75 this weekend picking up dog poop. I would have missed it. My whole point is, every moment, it's the small things that matter. We have so much to be thankful for. And I end with this comment from Brene Brown, who writes a lot about gratitude. She says, I don't have to chase extraordinary moments to find happiness. I don't have to chase extraordinary moments to find happiness. It's right in front of me if I'm paying attention and practicing gratitude. Well, that's enough for today.